0: Well, a few years ago, an extensive uh, research project was done, 250,000 people in the research project, 1,000 churches, it was four believers, it's an amazing number of people to be researched. And from that research, uh, they discovered, the researchers found that there were three categories that Christians kind of fall into. Again, these are very general, but three categories. The first category was called growing in Christ. Here's a person who's just a believer. They're just getting started. They're just learning the ropes. They're just starting their walk with Christ. The second category was close to Christ. Here was a person who was beginning to understand the transformation, the power that Jesus brings into a life and starting to apply the relationship with Jesus into all the areas of their life. The third group was called Christ-centered. This was the mature group. This was a group that had been around the block with Christ. This was the the group that was grounded uh, in Christ. Now, the interesting thing about the research was this. Regardless of what group people were in, whether they were in the growing in Christ, Christ, uh, close to Christ, or Christ-centered, regardless of the group, 92% of believers said that at some time in their spiritual journey, they felt, in the words of the research, stalled, uh, stale, distant from God. Uh, we could use the word soul-weary. Like most research does, it just tells us what we already know, right? We didn't have to do a research project to experience that, to know that experience in our life. In fact, I would say 92% is a little low. Every one of us experience times in our life. Maybe you're going through that today. When you're stuck, when when, when you're stalled, when you're sluggish, kind of like spinning our, our spiritual wheels. I know I've experienced that in my life many times and no doubt will again. But the good news is for the believer that we don't have to stay there. We never have to stay stuck. There's a remedy for the reality and as we re-engage in this book of Hebrews, this fascinating book of Hebrews, we want to focus on that remedy. And our focus, as we start in chapter nine and move through the rest of the book, will be what breaks us out of that spiritual staleness, what allows us to embrace a, a new stretch. And we want to focus on what we'll call during this time, from Hebrews nine to the rest of the book, a, a dose of fresh. Don't you want that? A dose of fresh faith. Behind me are names of people from Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the Hall of Faith. And it demonstrates all those who have lived faithfully before God. And we could go through every one of those names. And we will go through on Wednesday nights and see that people, even though they had these great victories with the Lord, even though they're moving forward, they're growing, they still have times When they're stuck. So, how do we get out of those? And how do we live in a way that stays and and, and focuses on this fresh faith that Jesus has for us? Chapter 9, the writer is going to go back and he's going to talk about the person of our fresh faith. As we've gone through Hebrews, it's been a, a fascinating study as we've seen that the writer of the Hebrews has told us from the beginning that Jesus is absolutely what? Absolutely supreme. There is no one like him. He is better than heaven's best. He is better than the prophets. He's better than the Old Testament system. Jesus is better than heaven's best. The writer started with these seven excellencies of Jesus in chapter one, verses one through three, said that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the owner of all things. Jesus created the world. Sometimes we think he was just that little baby born in a manger, but the writer says, no, he goes back. He's eternal. He was there at creation. He created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory he's the exact imprint of god's nature you want to know what god looks like just take a look at jesus he upholds the universe he made purification for sin he sat down at the right hand of god and in these eight chapters the writer we don't know his name but he's writing to a jewish audience and this jewish audience they are believers they came to know christ but they still have a lot of baggage anyone here have any baggage (laughs) they got a lot of baggage And they're dragging it with them. And the writer's trying to help them break out of the baggage so they can have this fresh faith with Christ. And so he'll go forward and he'll talk about Moses and he'll talk about the prophets and he'll talk about the priests and then he'll make a statement about Christ and then he'll go back and talk about those things again. That's what happens in uh, chapter 9. We're going to focus on the object of Christ, but the writer goes back to the Old Testament, and he shows us the types and the symbols and everything going on in the Old Testament that points us to Christ. It doesn't stay there. I was talking to a Jewish guy not long ago, and he said, you Christians read a lot more into the Old Testament than's there. And I said, yeah, we do, because there's a lot more that's there. It's completed in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that today as we go through this. Look at chapter 9. Verse one, so the writer's been telling us all these things about Christ. He's been telling us, he says in chapter eight, verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. Uh, uh, The covenant, he he mediates is better uh, since it is enacted on better promises. At the end of that uh, chapter, chapter eight, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He fulfills it, he completes it. It's a fresh and new way with Jesus. And now he's gonna go back. Because he wants the readers again to remember the Old Testament, what went on there, and how Jesus completes it. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly places of holiness. Even the first covenant had these had these regulations, had these regulations for worship and earthly place of holiness. Holiness. Now, the word "their earthly" does not mean something that God, uh, you know, uh, is displeased with. It simply means that in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there were things that were material. They were imperfect. They were temporary. In fact, the the, the place that you worshipped God in the Old Testament to begin with, as the children of Israel were going through the desert, was a tent called a tabernacle. Sometimes, look at chapter two, uh, chapter nine, verse two for a tent was prepared. We want to spend some time today talking about that tent. Now, it's interesting that when Israel settled, when they developed their kingdom, they didn't have a tent, but they had temples. They had magnificent temples. But every one of them, every temple was destroyed. Three temples, every temple destroyed destroyed. The first temple was built in 960 BC, Solomon's temple. People came from all over the world to see this magnificent temple that Solomon had built. But in 581 BC, after 300 years of existence, the Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar and they and, and they raised it to the ground. They destroyed it. Then, years later, the Persians defeated The Babylonians, the Persian king was named Cyrus, remember? And and Ezra, he said, I want all the people to go back and and reestablish their religion. He did that to, to gain the favor of the people. And so Ezra went back. Uh, to uh, talk to the people about the religious to to bring spiritual revival. Zerubbabel went back. Remember, he built the temple. And even Nehemiah went back, and he built the walls around the temple. That was all completed in 515 B.C. But by this time, the Syrians now were in charge of the world, and they went in and destroyed the temple on December the 15th, 167 B.C. It stayed in rubble. Then Herod, when he became the king of the Jews... In 19 B.C., he said, I want to do a favor for the Jews. I want to gain their favor. So he started rebuilding the temple. And it took him 10 years to rebuild the main portion, but he continued to build it. It was a magnificent temple. Continued to build it. Even when Christ was on earth, he was still building the temple. He completed it in 64 A.D. But by this time, who ruled the world? Rome. And they destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. Today, if you go to that spot, the Dome of the Rock is there. The Muslim mosque is there for the temple. Even even the beautiful temples that were built, all destroyed, didn't last. They were imperfect. They were were temporary. Now, the writer, he's writing to a group uh, probably in 65 A.D. The temple is still uh, standing because it's not destroyed until 70 A.D., So, there's this temptation for them to always go back to the temple, always go back to temple worship, always always to look at the ritual and the symbols and the signs instead of the person of Jesus. And so, he takes them all the way back to the Old Testament during the days of the wanderings of Israel, and he's going to talk to them about the tent. Uh, we'll go through this quickly. In chapter 1 through 10, he describes what's going on in the tabernacle or the tent. And in the first verses, he's going to tell us the furniture in there. And then in the second part of that uh, that section, he'll tell us the function of the priest. So we're going to go through that. And the whole purpose of this is to demonstrate that everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple, it was temporary, and it all Pointed to Jesus. The fresh way, the new way, the new covenant that brings true transformation from the inside out. I love this verse at the end of verse 5. The writer says when he's talking about the tabernacle of these, this is a great verse for all teachers, by the way, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Sometimes you can't get into all the details and stuff, right? Because you've got to keep the focus. And the writer is saying, I'm just going to tell you about the things in the temple that point us to Christ. So let's think about that. Here's what the writer tells us in the first 10 verses. When Moses went to Mount Sinai and he got the law, God also gave him instruction regarding the tent or the tabernacle. God said, "There's, I want to meet with the people. Now, when I'm guiding the people by day, there's going to be a pillar of fire, and you're going to follow me uh, as you wander in the wilderness. By night, there's a there's a cloud, or cloud during the day, pillar of fire by night. But when you settle, you're going to stay at certain spots for periods of time, and I want you to build a tabernacle because I'm going to meet with you there. That's where you're going to come. That's where you're going to meet with me. That's where I'm going to interact with you. So the tabernacle, the instructions that were given to Moses In the Old Testament, as the children were wandering in the desert, the tabernacle was 45 feet long, it was 15 feet wide, and it was 15 feet high. It had. It was a wooden structure that could be taken down. Uh, the wooden uh, sides and top, and uh, the wood had the, the the pieces of wood were overlaid with gold, and they had rings on them so you could put poles through the structure and hold them up. But again, it was temporary. You had to take it down sometimes, and so it was. A, it was a. It was a mammoth task, but you could move the tabernacle from place to place. The tabernacle was overlaid with four pieces of cloth, four big sheets of cloth, and then over that there was an animal skin that went around the temple. And here's an opening of that, but this would have been covered uh, all the way across with the animal skin. Now again, there wasn't anything going on in the temple that that that, that was wasted. It was all there as a sign. It was there to remind us of Jesus. It was pointing to Jesus. It was to prepare us for Jesus. It was to get us ready. And so the first thing we see with this tabernacle, there wasn't a front door and a back door and side doors. There was what? One entrance right here. And that reminds us of what? There's one way. One way to God. And we know that's through Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of ways, but there's one. And you could only get into the temple one way. The first room, there were two rooms in the temple. The first room was called the holy place. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, right here to here. It was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And in the holy place, the priests could go in and out. There were three pieces of furniture in the holy place, the first was a candle, kind of a candelabra. It was right there, and that candle had to be lit all the time. There was a big golden candle in the middle, and three uh, little springs coming from either side. That candle was lit all the time, and so when Jesus said in the New Testament, "I am the what? Light of the world," it clicked. The light of the world and the temple was always there, lit all the time. And Jesus is the one who is there lighting our way. There was also this table here. It was a table of uh, bread. There was bread on the table. And every week, the priest would go in and they would put fresh 12 fresh loaves of bread there. And so when Jesus in the New Testament said, what? I am the bread of life. They would know that Jesus was there to nourish them. Just like that bread nourished the priest in the Old Testament, Jesus was there to nourish them and always give them what they needed. Also, the third piece of furniture uh, in this holy place was this thing right here. It was an altar of incense. And it had incense, hot coals, and incense was going all the time. And it was a, it was right Right before you entered into the Holy of Holies, there was a curtain there, but it was demonstrating the incense going up, the prayers of people going up before God, but you couldn't get to God because there's a curtain there. You can't get to the Holy of Holies. But that incense continued to go up, a reminder that Jesus is always interceding on our behalf. There was a curtain that separated this Part right here, this thirty-foot part from the Holy of Holies. That's this part right here, and it was a fifteen feet square. And in the Holy of Holies, there was only one piece of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was four feet long, two feet high, two feet wide. About in the, it was overlaid with gold. In the, it made of acacia wood. In the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. The writer tells us about in these verses. First. There was a jar of manna, a golden jar that held about two quarts of manna. And that jar was in there because God always wanted to remind his people that he provided for them. Even when they were in the desert, even when they couldn't farm, e- even when they didn't have water, even when they didn't have any food, he rained manna down for them. He always provides for his people. Some of you here today may be thinking, I don't know, I don't know where God's going to provide for me. I have no idea where it's going to come from. God always provides for his people. There was another thing uh, in the ark. It was a, it was a, it was a staff that had uh, a sprigs on it that had budded. And it was a reminder uh, from Numbers 17. If you remember in Number 17, the people were grumbling again as they, as they did often when, uh, when the Israel was in the desert. And so God said, okay, I'm done with this. Bring out, I want, and they were saying, why, why is Aaron, why does he get to be the priest? We, we all should be, a, we, all of our tribes should be priests. Why does Aaron get to do it? So God said, okay, bring all your staffs, a staff for every tribe, lay them here on the ground. And then that's what they did. And in the morning... Remember, Aaron's staff had budded with blossoms and ripe almonds. God showing, as it were, that his staff, Aaron's leadership, was living. He had blessed Aaron as the priest and the high priest of Israel. And so God said, I want you to put that in there. In fact, in Numbers chapter 17, 10, he says, and the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end to their grumbling against me. This was a sign to the rebels. I am in charge. We all have rebellious spirits, don't we? Or you need to be reminded that God's the one in charge. of the third thing uh, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and it was the, 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 the law, the tablets that Moses had brought down. Now, the Ten Commandments, the tablets were a summary of the whole law, and it was placed in there to remember the regulations that God had given them. Then there was something even more significant. On top of the ark was a lid made of pure gold. There were these two angel-like creatures on either side. They were called cherubim. They had wings. Their wings kind of touched each other, forming kind of an ark. And in the middle of that, that's where God's presence was. That's where God met with the high priest. That's where God stayed. Now, there was a separation because you can't get to God on your own. And that seat was called, anybody know? The mercy seat. Did you love that? God could have called it my earthly throne, but He called it what? The mercy seat. Because God is God of grace; He's a God of mercy, and when His presence is among us, we experience His mercy. In fact. The thing that took place in that holy of holies, that most holy place, demonstrated God's true mercy. Because one day a year, on the day of atonement, tenth day of the seventh month, the high priest could go in to the holy of holies. That was only entered one time a year. And the high priest would prepare himself. He would sacrifice animals for himself. And then he would get another priest to help him as he sacrificed a bull. And then as a blood drain, they got this blood in a bowl. And the priest again would go in and he would take that blood and he would sprinkle on the mercy seat. And he did that as a reminder or as the act that a sacrifice had been made for the sins of the people. Well, of course, we know the symbol there, don't we? Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer has been saying that Jesus is our high priest. He's the only one who can go before God. We are separated from God. There's a great curtain there. But on the cross, remember what happened in the cross? That curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Now there was full access through Jesus. And Jesus became the one-time-for-all-time sacrifice for our sins. So in the first 10 verses, the writer sets it up. Here's what happened in the Old Testament. Here are the symbols. It was always about Jesus. It was always preparing us for him. It was always getting us ready for Jesus. And now he says in chapter 9, verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11, in contrast to that Old Testament way, in contrast to the old covenant, in contrast to the old covenant, now there's a fresh way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he is the high priest of the good things to come. Now we have access to God. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is not made with hands, that is not of this creation. What's the tent? The Old Testament tent was made of cloth and skin. We have now a tent that Jesus appears to that's not made of hands. What's that? It's heaven itself. It's the dwelling place of God itself. Jesus appears before God in heaven and he entered once for all into the holy place. As our high priest, he entered one time for all time into the holy place and he entered before the mercy seat of God. Look at chapter uh, nine. Uh, verse 12, he did that not by means of blood and goats, but the Old Testament priest had to, some, uh, some, I read one commentary who said that the Old Testament high priest sacrificed about 22 animals on the day of atonement just to get himself ready and then for the people. Not by the means of blood and goats anymore, but by the means of his what? His own blood securing for us making it possible for us, and nailing down for us eternal redemption. That word redemption, of course, means to buy back. Theologically, it means to buy back from slavery. We were slaves to sin, and Jesus, by his blood, purchased us, bought us back, and he did that before God one time for all time, no more symbols, no more types, no more prefiguring, no more furniture in the temple. Now, all that stuff allowed for outward cleansing, but now Jesus has come to provide us eternal redemption and has cleansed us from the inside out by his death on the cross. So let's just stop there with the basic question. Why did did he need to do that? Why do I need to be redeemed? After World War II, Israeli agents captured Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was the mastermind uh, behind the, the, the Nazi Holocaust. And they brought Eichmann to Israel for trial. And they brought in a bunch of witnesses who had seen... Of what had happened in the camps, and one of those was a man named Yehiel Dinor, a little Jewish man. He had been in, um, at Auschwitz and he knew the, the torture that had gone on there. So he entered the courtroom and he stared at this man Eichmann, who had, who had overseen the slaughter of millions of Jews, many of his friends. They say that that day. You can Google this and and even see some of the video. That day when Dinor went in, uh, his eyes met the eyes of Eichmann, this mass murderer. And the courtroom just fell silent, wondering what was going to happen. Then suddenly, Dinor collapsed on the floor, sobbing violently. No one knew if he was overcome with hatred, if he was overcome with, with, with grief, if he was overcome with just the emotions of of the moment. Later, Denor explained in an interview on 60 Minutes what struck him was that Eichmann didn't look like the evil monster he had pictured him to be. In fact, he looked like an ordinary person, just like everyone else. Here's what Denor said. In that moment, I realized that evil is endemic to the human condition that any one of us could commit the same atrocities. And then Denor concluded, Eichmann is in us all. It's true, isn't it? As one old writer said, the seed of every sin is in our heart. The sin of every sin is planted in our heart, Eichmann is in us all, and until we believe that, we don't need Jesus because we can fix things on our own because we can do things on our own. Some of us I came to Christ when I was early on, uh, early in my life, and some of you did the same thing, and we forget that Eichmann is in us all, and we forget what Jesus saved us from. The atrocities, the damage, the tragedy that we would have lived a life of had Jesus not interrupted our life and brought us to himself. Some of you know well, the path that you took, you have all the scars of that life. And Jesus saved you from that. But until we come to grips with the fact that Eichmann is in us all, we don't need Jesus. Have you come to that point? Do you know for sure that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Look at the last verse that we're going to look at today, chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. How much more? If the, if the blood of bulls and goats could kind of satisfy God in the Old Testament, how much more? As Jesus, the perfect sacrifice come, purify us, our conscience, from dead works. Dead works are those works that we do to try to get to God on our own. But God purifies us from those dead works to, for a purpose, Right? To serve the living God. To serve God with all we are worth. To live out a fresh faith in our lives. To demonstrate to a watching world that our lives have been transformed from the inside out. Are you serving God with all your worth? Are you living with that fresh faith? I want to do two things as we wrap up our service. At the end of your aisle, there are some cards, pieces of paper. And whoever's at the end of the aisle on the campuses, just pass that down. I'm going to ask you to do something on these cards. We're not going to bring them up at the, uh, to the cross as we do sometimes, but these are for your own uh, work uh, before the Lord. And as you're getting those, I want to talk to, to two groups of people. First of all, I want to talk to those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ It's the only way to have a relationship with the living God. You know for sure that you've done that. You have no doubts about that. As we kick off this new ministry year, I want you to write on there um, your desire, however you want to say it, your desire for fresh faith. And if there's anything holding you back from fresh faith, If there's anything holding you back from a full out, full orb following Jesus, jot that down and confess it. By jotting it down, you're you're confessing it to God. I don't don't want this to hold me back. You know, I was thinking, as I I was reading uh, this week that Eichmann story, that as believers, we should be, shouldn't we? We should be the most grateful and most gracious people on the face of the planet. Because we realize what Jesus has done for us. He has saved us for eternity. We should be the most grateful people. And we should be the most gracious people. Sometimes we're not, are we? Sometimes Christians can be the most judgmental. Sometimes Christians can point at other people's sin without realizing that but for the grace of God, there go I. Maybe that's something we want to jot down. That's holding us back. Now, when I say we shouldn't be judgmental, I'm not saying... We should just put down scripture and anything goes. I'm not saying that. We should be the most principled in God's word, the most grounded in God's word, but also the most gracious to other people because we know what God saved us from. We should be the most forgiving of other people. I gotta tell you, if you got someone in your life and you haven't forgiven them, It's just going to eat you up. I don't know where they are today. They're probably not worried about it. But it will eat you up from the inside. And secondly, it's an act of disobedience. Because when we understand the grace that God has given us, saved us from what he saved us from, then we ought to be those, Ephesians 4.32, that forgives others just as what? God in Christ has forgiven us. So maybe you need to jot down. You can't have fresh faith when you're holding on to a grudge or 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 something in the past. Fresh faith demands that we are forgiving, just like God is. His presence on the mercy seat. It means that we are grateful, and it means that we are gracious. What's holding you back? Jot that down. Deal with it. Let me talk to those of you who have not trusted Christ. I pray today's the day. Jesus Christ has done everything for you. He offers to you a free pardon of sin. He took care of it on the cross. And he offers it for you. Why don't you take it? Why don't you take it? Maybe it's pride. You're not ready. You're going to wait. I got news for you. No guarantees that we're going to be here tomorrow. Accepting the pardon is urgent. 1829, two guys were convicted of robbing a train, a mail train, in Pennsylvania. A guy named George Wilson and a guy named James Porter. They were caught. They were put on trial in May 1830. They were found guilty on six charges, and they were both sentenced to hang. On July the 2nd, May 1830, sentenced to be hung. On that day, James Porter was hung for what he did. But Wilson wasn't. Wilson had some influential friends, and he pleaded for mercy to the President of the United States, who at that time was Andrew Jackson. Jackson issued a formal pardon, dropping all the charges. But guess what? George Wilson refused the pardon. An official report stated that Wilson chose to, quote, waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. Wilson also stated that, quote, he had nothing to say and did not wish in any manner to avail himself in order to avoid the sentence. Now, this had never happened before. So they didn't know what to do. What do you do with the pardon that someone doesn't take? It went all the way to the Supreme Court. United States versus... George Wilson. And here's what the court determined. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this, "'A pardon is an act of grace.'" Proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And we have no power in the court to force it on him. George, George Wilson went to the gallows and was hanged because he refused a pardon. Some of you here today who don't know Christ, you're refusing the greatest gift you could ever have, eternal redemption, based on what Christ has done for you. Why in the world would you refuse the pardon and choose life instead of eternal death? Today I'm going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to pray a prayer. This prayer doesn't save you. This is only a guide for you, if God's working in your heart, and He's the one who brings that about. If God's working in your heart, then use this prayer as a guide. And today I plead with you to accept the pardon that Jesus offers to you. Remember, a pardon is an act of grace, but has no benefit unless you what? Accept it. So Father, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I, uh, there's Eichmann in me. I'm a sinner to the core. And I can pretend to be anything else. I also admit to you that all the stuff I try to do to work my way to you are nothing more than dead works. So today I trust in Jesus. I trust in Jesus as the one who came and died on a cross. To to, to to purchase my pardon, to buy me out of slavery of sin. I trust in Jesus as the only one, not one of many ways or a good way, but the only way I can have a relationship with you, the living God. Right now, today, I trust in Jesus Christ and I thank you for him. In his name I pray. Amen. Today, if you prayed that prayer, I just ask you to put today's date on that slip of paper and place it in your Bible and know that we would love the opportunity to follow up with you at all of our campuses.